Hello, and welcome to Moonwise Podcast, a space to find beauty from the heart of nature. I'm your host, Dorte Sophie Royal, and in this episode, I speak with clinical social worker and perinatal mental health specialist, Anna King, about parenting as a highly sensitive person. We talk about the characteristics of this evolutionary trait and some of the gifts and challenges that it presents. Anna shares tips for dealing with overstimulation and how to support HSPs so they can thrive in parenthood. She also shares her unique insights about why highly sensitive people are at a higher risk for postpartum depression and anxiety, and also talks about some of the systemic and cultural barriers for understanding this trait within communities of color. We also talk about highly sensitive people and altered states of consciousness, inequity in maternal mental health, the myth of the strong black woman, and expanding our concept about what it means to be a parent. But first, I want to send a big thank you to our Patreon subscribers who help make this show possible. You can join us at patreon.com slash moonwise, where I'm sharing a recipe for yarrow mint tea for cold and flu season. Okay, on with our show. Anna King is a licensed clinical social worker and certified perinatal mental health specialist who uses an integrative, trauma-informed approach in her work grounded in reproductive and transformative justice. Anna serves as clinical training specialist at Maternal Mental Health Now, where she curates training events and curriculum and facilitates training to educate providers on perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Throughout her experiences, Anna has realized the significant barriers to care for birthing people, especially for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, and queer, trans, and gender-diverse individuals and families. Her work centers on the embodied liberation of marginalized groups in reproductive spaces. She's also currently a part-time psychotherapist with ARC Counseling and Wellness and a third-year PhD student in the Integral and Transpersonal Psychology Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Her research interests include spiritual activism, the highly sensitive person trait, birth and postpartum tradition, and the transition to parenthood as a rite of passage. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm just like super excited. (laughs) I'm super excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, I cannot wait to dive into maternal mental health and being a highly sensitive person as a parent and talk about your amazing work in the world. And so I thought the way to start might be, we can start by defining what a highly sensitive person is. Um, And what I know about that is it's an innate trait found in about 20% of the population. It's a well-researched concept. There are books about it. And so I'm wondering what in your mind are some of the traits or characteristics of a highly sensitive person? Yeah, it's a perfect place to start. Um, Yeah, so essentially the uh, trait was kind of coined, the um, terminology highly sensitive person was coined by Elaine Aaron and um, her husband um, in the 90s. Um, And what she really found in her clients is that they had a certain set of characteristics. And so um, she even uh, kind of uh, created an acronym, D-O-E-S, to uh, capture the 
four main characteristics that tend to present in HSPs. Um, so the first of which is depth of processing. And so uh, it really speaks to uh, how HSPs have this, you know, they call it a rich inner life. Um, and so they tend to think about things really deeply and thoroughly um, and tend to be quite conscientious and aware, self-aware. Um, aware of how their actions impact others. Um, and then you have the O, which refers to overstimulation. And so it really speaks to how um, HSPs uh, process, you know, more stimuli in their environment, which leads to them experiencing the state of overstimulation um, uh, a little more quickly than uh, the everyday person. And then E stands for, um, there's a couple of different ways that you can uh, go about it. Uh, emotional reactivity, I think, is what the liter literature says. Um, but I like to reframe it and kind of uh, just say empathy um, because it really speaks to this wider range of emotional expression. And so, you know, really reframing, that's uh, an important part of my work, is reframing it to be, you know, something that's empowering. And so really um, HSPs uh, tend to be attuned to other people's emotional states. Um, they tend to, you know, feel really deeply. They feel, you know, but they, they don't feel just the bad things really deeply. They feel the good things really uh, profoundly too. So when they're happy, they're really happy. Um, so, you know, I really, you know, I really appreciate uh, looking at it from that uh, lens. And then the S stands for uh, sensing the subtle. Um, and so they really can uh, tune to subtleties in their environment. An example that I like to give often is that, you know, they might notice that a lamp um, is in a different spot from one day to the next. And so, um, you know, they're really processing um, both internally and externally um, in a really deep way. Wow. Thank you for that. And I'm just nodding and smiling because as an HSP, I identify with those things so strongly. And with the lamp example, I'm thinking of a time when I could tell that a certain person had visited my home because a certain book was slightly moved on my bookshelf. And for some reason, I just knew that that person had visited and touched that book. And, and some people would say like, oh, okay, are you psychic? I'm like, no, I just am like noticing so many things. <laughs> And maybe there's also energetic imprint that that person left that I'm also picking up on. And so I, I was actually thinking about this and I was curious if, and I don't know what the scientific literature would really say on this, but if there are also extrasensory traits like clairaudience, clairsentience, I wonder, like, do they go hand in hand or is this, yeah, I just, I don't even know. I wonder the same thing. Uh, there's actually not a lot of literature or um, formal explorations of um, the intersection between the HSP trait or empaths as some some folks. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of debate. And so you'll hear me saying like kind of, well, this is what so-and-so says, but then so-and-so says something entirely different. Um, so there, there have been some folks who have published books, um, but they're mostly based on anecdote, um, their own personal 
experiences, experiences that they've, um, stories that they've heard from people that they work with. Um, and those tend to be the folks that identify it as, you know, uh, an empathic trait, um, intuitive, psychic intuitive um, capacities. Um, but there have been a, a handful of studies, maybe two or three I've found, um, that are looking at the intersection of HSP trait and altered states of consciousness. And so the studies in particular really looked at the HSP experience in uh, sensory deprivation float tanks. And what they found is that HSPs do in fact experience more altered states of consciousness and they um, the HSPs in that study reported more mystical experiences outside of the study boundaries. And so um, I have similar questions. I'm uh, currently studying transpersonal psychology and so I um, it's one of the areas of interest that I've explored just a little bit in my studies um, is really looking at is there some extrasensory um, you know component to this and you know what we found is that in some of the the literature uh, that really looks at neuroscience and looking at the nervous systems of HSPs it is found that there are some clear differences in brain structure in their nervous system and really just the way that they perceive the world it's it's very different and so I wouldn't be surprised if you know in upcoming years there um, you know the more uh, research is, is uh, uh, done in that area um, that we might find that there may be uh, something something there. Fascinating. And, you know, before we dive into some of the challenges that highly sensitive parents might have, I wanted to take a moment to say that, you know, once people kind of recognize that they may have this trait, it can be framed as um, it, for me, at least growing up as like, okay, you're too sensitive. It's not really a great thing. However, having really started to understand it, it has truly become a gift once you know how to work with it. And in my case, opens up that those subtle abilities to be able to connect with plants, for example, where I can be noticing subtle communication from plants, whereas if maybe I weren't so sensitive, maybe it would be harder. I don't know, but I, tr I really try to reframe it for myself because growing up, you know, not being able to watch scary movies or like read certain books or just feel everyone's feeling, you know, so it's it can be overwhelming. And, and so I do hope that more research and information gets out there because it can really be a gift. I agree. I definitely agree with that. And that's um, part of, you know, why I'm so intentional about my language and, and really framing it as really a superpower if you think about it. And the unfortunate thing is, you know, it's still um, kind of there's more awareness uh, still that needs to happen around, you know, just identifying what the HSP trait is and, and how to identify if you, um, you know, kind of fall within those that range. Um, but for a lot of folks, once they realize that it's a thing and they they learn how to really take good care of themselves to prevent themselves from getting and, and staying in this state of overstimulation, they really can harness it. And, and as you said, you know, there are some really um, beautiful gifts about it. And so when we talk about it and within the context of parenthood, um, yes, it can be a challenge in, in terms of being a parent, but it can also be a really big gift in terms of being able to be really deeply attuned to your child and their needs. Yeah. And one topic that you have talked about on your Instagram feed that really caught my attention is the increased risk for postpartum depression among highly sensitive parents and probably mothers in particular. And that bit of information 
blew my mind. I had no idea. It makes so much sense to me in terms of the overstimulation, the um, increased sensitivity to sleep deprivation. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that, especially the sleep deprivation, because I, wow, like I need sleep. I have, I need to process all the input that I'm taking in all day. And it sounds like, even when I say it, I, I feel like I sound so entitled or like, it's such a luxury to say that you need that. It's like, okay, weakling, like, you know, figure it out. You have an infant, whatever, but man, it was tough for me. Absolutely. That's like one of the biggest challenges for HSP parents. And so, you know, kind of uh, taking it, uh, the two areas, the two kind of bodies of um, knowledge, this is another area that there hasn't been any studies um, that have looked at the intersection of the HSP trait and perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And so, again, this is an area of focus that both my own personal experiences and the experiences I've seen in my clients and in other folks that I've heard their stories, it's very similar to what you were talking about, that that period of time. Um, in general, HSPs have trouble, you know, just with adjustment. We tend to ha- need a little bit more time um, to adjust to changes and new experiences because we are processing so much um, information at any given time. Um, and also part of that experience is we tend to be really sensitive to pain, um, really sensitive to hormone fluctuations, and really sensitive and really can feel the effects of sleep deprivation. And so we know when you have a baby, you're not getting much sleep at all. Um, and so, you know, um, kind of looking at the the what we know about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders is that the some of the two uh, most common um, risk factors are hormone fluctuations and sleep deprivation. And so when you put the two together, it makes sense that for many um, folks who are, um, who identify as HSP may be at a higher risk of developing um, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Wow. I hope that information gets out there. And I also wonder if in your work, are there strategies or tips that you offer highly sensitive people in order to help them thrive in parenthood, which is kind of an innately overstimulating task or job. I mean, I don't want to call parenthood a job. It's, it's a beautiful opportunity, but there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of activity. And when, if you have, for example, I have a child who is extremely extroverted, full of energy, ready to go meet and explore. And it's so beautiful to see. And yet as a highly sensitive person, it, it, uh, it stretches my container a lot and I've had to learn how to take care so that I can be the best parent that I can be and not reach what I call I've reached my limit. Or I, we had this code word, me and my husband, where we'd be like, okay, I'm almost at my limit. Like I just, and so we know we have like a code word and it happened a lot more when my son was an infant. Now that he's older, it's like things are more peaceful, but we, we both became aware of like, there's this limit that you don't want to <laughs> go over. Cause then I like shut down completely. <laughs> Yeah, I'm having to, um, I find myself in this moment having to kind of slow down because there are so many different directions that it can go. Um, and so much, you know, so many answers I have, um, to just that one question, um, because it's so, um, personalized. Um, but I think the first step is really just normalizing how difficult that experience is and that it doesn't mean that you're a bad parent because you, you experience overstimulation. 
stimulation. Um, there can be a lot of shame with experiencing um, overstimulation. Like I've heard a lot of parents who, you know, share that, you know, I feel like I'm such a bad mom because I just need to get away from my baby. Um, but, you know, when we're able to really normalize that, you know, your body, it's just the way that your body was created. Your nervous system just needs a little bit of extra TLC so that you can show up in the way that you want to as a parent. And so, you know, taking that first step to provide that education, because a lot of parents don't even know that they are HSP until they enter the parenting period, because it is so trying and stretches us, as you said. Um, and so then they realize, you know, oh my goodness, you know, this didn't seem so hard for so-and-so. What, what's going on for me? Um, uh, and so, you know, they really are able to um, to, to get to, to know themselves in a different way. Um, the other thing that I really uh, try to explore with families is to, you know, find out how they can be proactive. So I love what you shared about having a code word and really having that open communication with your partner. Um, because we don't know any given day um, kind of how our nervous system is going to show up. You know, there are a lot of different factors that impact that, how much sleep we've been getting, what's our nutrition looking like. Um, and so one thing that, um, you know, in terms of being proactive that, you know, I've found works for me, but also works for a lot of my clients is working in time every day to have a no sensory or low sensory experience. So either in the middle of the day um, for 10 minutes or at the end of the day, when you're experiencing a transition between activities, you go to a room, turn off the lights, no sounds, no phones, no screens, no nothing. And you just let your, your nervous system have a, a quick little reset. Um, and it just gives gives your body a chance to kind of stop processing information or so much information for a moment and then get that opportunity to recharge your batteries. Um, but there are just so many suggestions. You know, a lot of people have a lot of luck with, um, you know, earthing. So going outside um, and, and exposing your, your um, body to the earth uh, and really uh, experiencing that calming effect um, uh, from that exchange. Um, you know, really prioritizing your sleep. And so sometimes that, ha that means having a conversation with your partner and expressing how important sleep is for you to be able to have that range of capacity to do, you know, what you need to do each day. And so, you know, sometimes that means, especially in that newborn period, that your partner is going to have to step it up. Now, it's a different conversation if your partner is also sensitive. Um, and so uh, that's a whole other conversation that, you know, we're, we're, we're focusing a little bit here on the, the birthing person or the gestational carrier. But, you know, dads get. Um, have sensitivity too. And, um, you know, uh, it's important to consider what their needs are as well. I'm curious if you'd be willing to share a little bit about your own experience. Did you know that you were a highly sensitive person before you had your own child or did you discover it later or... I think I was in the process of discovery. I'd had a therapist probably... Uh, probably almost 10 to 10, 15 years ago now, um, who had kind of subtly mentioned it, but I don't think that she actually had a lot of information about it. I think she had heard it through someone and said, well, maybe this is a thing. Um, and I kind of just brushed it off um, because it was during the time that I was um, entering my graduate studies and I just had a really hard time adjusting. And I, you know, ended up going to see a therapist to, for some support and um, it got suggested there kind of like planted a seed 
um, but I never watered the seed until, you know, it came time to me working in a hospital setting where um, I was in the emergency department and I was so unwell during that time. It was really, really intense. And so when we think about for, you know, sensitive folks, you are absorbing so much information and stimuli and other people's, you know, conditions, their medical conditions, their, you know, um, emotional conditions, and you're feeling all of that crisis. And so I was really unwell because I didn't know how to take care of myself at the time. And so that that was when I was starting to realize, you know, that maybe there's there's something to this, um, that, you know, why I am just having such a hard time being in this high-paced, high stimuli environment. And so then um, I transitioned to working in maternal care. Um, and then I started to kind of look into it, um, but I still wasn't quite sure. hadn't really had enough um, uh, opportunities to explore it, I, I guess I should say. And so I had my baby and then I started to really do the research and was like, okay, so this is what's been going on all of this time. Um, and I'm going to really have to get serious about how I can manage this um, because it was really, really difficult. I mean, you think about, you know, the pain of childbirth, of course, but even just in the recovery period and then breastfeeding can be really painful. And I just had a lot of trouble with that. And so, um, you know, the more I started to um, look into it and educate myself um, about um, you know, how that, that trait might be impacting my, um, my experience as a new mom. Um, then I started to realize, uh, okay, like I need to, I need to really start educating myself and my partner, um, and being more proactive about how I can keep my, um, my range of, um, sensory input, um, within a range that I could tolerate, um, and so, you know, it looked like, um, you know, trying not to have just the TV on in the background, because that's the other thing. Whenever we're, um, you know, our nervous system isn't always consciously processing information. We're subconsciously processing um, what's going on in the background. We're hearing the subtle, subtle noises in the other room. And so, you know, trying to think through and think creatively about how I'm going to nourish myself, nourish my body, um, make sure that I am um, taking really good care of myself, prioritizing myself sleep um, and and reducing unnecessary input um, so that I could really be present in the way that I needed to with my baby. That's so beautiful and makes so much sense. I've had the experience of driving with a song on and suddenly realizing this song is stressing me out so much, turning it off and the, just the peace that follows like, oh, okay, <laughs> I can like think clearly again. And we often don't realize things that are just adding so much to our nervous system. So that makes a lot of sense. And also just the relief of understanding this trait, I think is, is really powerful. And the way in which it gives us permission to take care of it in a certain way and the self-compassion, because I still often feel quite guilty and strange to be like, I just need to take a 10 minute nap or just close my eyes for 10 minutes. I'm like, who am I to just like do that? But, um, I have to continue with the self-compassion, like, no, that, that I can do that. It's gonna, I'll show up way better once I've done that and it's okay. Yeah. And that's, that's, what's unfortunate about our society in general is that 
any parent should have access to and need, you know, and, and really needs that kind of downtime and, and can and should have the permission to prioritize their needs. But we're conditioned to think that we have to sacrifice our whole selves for our children. But really what that does is that we sacrifice ourselves to the point of depletion and then our children don't get the best version of us. And so really when I think about it like that, I try to share with parents that, you know, you're doing this, yeah, for yourself, but you're also doing it for your child. Um, and, you know, it can be really intense, especially during that newborn time. And um, they call it merging. We tend to merge with our baby's experience. And so, you know, oftentimes what our baby is feeling and experiencing and, uh, you know, some parents will have a, a child with colic, you know, imagine how intense that is. And for an HSP parent, it can feel sometimes like you're feeling exactly what your baby is feeling. And so, you know, starting to to recognize how important it is to differentiate your needs um, and, and really prioritize them. I want to take a moment to let you know that there are just a few copies left of the first print run of Rooted, a pregnancy journal honoring the inward path to motherhood. The journal includes writing and drawing prompts, meditations, quotes from a diverse group of inspiring moms, simple self-care practices, and tips. If you'd like to order a copy in time for the holidays, we'll be taking orders for shipping until November 30th, 2021. If you're hearing this after the deadline, we also have an ebook version available. We're looking forward to a second print run in 2022, and we will be offering wholesale to select retailers in the new year as well. You can order your copy at rootedmotherhoodjournal.com. I recently saw someone giving advice for highly sensitive parents. There's, I guess, like an earbud that that doesn't cancel sound, but just reduces it slightly. That idea also blew my mind. I never thought about it. My nervous system would go absolutely haywire when my child cried. And I understood the biological reason for that. Of course, they need to be tended to. And there's a reason why <laughs> I hear the call and I'm, I'm there. However, this idea that I could potentially just turn down the volume a little bit, still be able to respond, maybe even be responding from a calmer place. I, I just couldn't even believe it. I was like, I, would I be allowed to do that? It's amazing. Like just getting creative about how, and, and that's the thing too. We all have kind of different presentations of how it shows up for us. So some person might not be as um, sensitive to or affected by noise, but you know, the touch. So like you, there's that term of being touched out. A lot of um, times our babies are, are all over us. And when we're, when we're nursing, um, they're on us, you know, sometimes every 15 minutes around the clock sometimes. And so, um, you know, that kind of stimulation might be really tough for one parent. And so it's really kind of trying to get to know and understand your own um, uh, triggers for overstimulation, um, getting to know what works for you to reset your nervous system, um, getting to know kind of what your what the cues are that you're starting to feel overstimulated. I hear a lot of parents that say, you know, I was fine. And then all of a sudden I wasn't fine. Um, and so like starting to kind of understand what are those cues leading up to that state of overstimulation that's just a little harder to come back from. I mean, it's it's not the end of the, you know, the world that, you know, you get overstimulated.
overstimulated. It's just a little harder to recover from. Um, and so getting to know what those cues are that, you know, okay, I can start to tell that I'm getting, you know, I'm getting tense. I'm starting to pace. I'm starting to like look towards the exits and the doors. And, you know, I kind of want, I want to escape. And that's when, that's when you use your code word with your partner. Like, okay, hit my limit need 10 minutes, I'll be back. Um, and so, yeah, just, uh, that's also part of being proactive. Yeah, that makes sense. My, my husband calls it the deer in the headlights. Look, I start to not be able to respond to anyone. People ask me questions and I'm just staring. That's it right there. That's, that's how it shows up for you. And, and it might look a little differently for everybody, but the more you're, um, you give yourself permission to explore it and, um, you know, it can be helpful even to kind of track a journal, um, uh, for a few days, a week, a couple of weeks and, and kind of track what happened that day, what happened right before you felt that way, what did you feel, Tra- uh, checking in with your body and really even doing that um, on a daily basis um, uh, without even uh, writing it down, sitting uh, there and kind of checking in with yourself. How am I feeling today? How did I sleep last night? What was my quality of sleep? Um, and that can really inform how much or how little you feel like you have the capacity for that day and you honor that. Um, and you really just kind of think about, you know, I, I didn't really sleep very well last night, so I'm probably not going to have, um, you know, the capacity that I normally would um, to go to this birthday party with my child. Um, so maybe I, I asked my partner to, to take them instead. And so, you know, um, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's powerful. Yeah. Well, I want to make sure to talk about this also in the context of social justice, as I know that's a really important part of your work. And in light of inequality in the maternal health care ecosystem that we're living in, especially maternal mental health in communities of color, this is a huge issue. I think it doesn't even get remotely the amount of attention that it, it should. And yeah, I would just love to hear more about your work at this intersection. Yeah, you know, again, there's not a whole lot of research that's been done in this area. And what I've found is that even the original studies that um, we are kind of rely upon um, for establishing this HSP trait um, isn't necessarily the samples weren't so diverse. And so um, that is something that I've thought a lot about and, you know, if and when I decide to do my own research um, that's oriented toward the HSP experience. It's something I definitely plan to prioritize and and really emphasize um, because we do know that for black and brown bodies who are entering the reproductive period, they're up against a very different experience and um, that that can really uh, create some challenges with them having the space, time, permission, um, and capacity to take care of themselves in this way. Oftentimes, communities of color are are, you know, faced with um, challenging barriers. They have to go back to work um, really quickly or they just don't have access to the same um, support in the perinatal period. And so when we think about um, HSP parents, you know, and um, needing, really needing, it's a necessity, it's not a privilege, really needing um, that opportunity to um, prioritize their needs, take really good care of themselves, um, that that just looks a lot different for some, for some groups. Yeah, I'm I'm so intrigued by this, especially the cultural aspect, because I've met people who come from a culture in which it's just really not acceptable to be sensitive or just not practical for survival purposes. And so while someone may be innately that way, they don't present that way because they're like, oh yeah, I don't have time for this. Like I need to go to work. (laughs) So I'm curious if that's something you've also observed or explored. 
Absolutely. I think you um, really hit that spot on that for some of our, uh, some of our, um, these communities, especially, you know, black women, black, black birthing people, um, they're up against the stereotype of the strong black woman. And that has manifested in this medical system that really um, treats them as if they don't feel pain or as if they don't experience the full range of emotional expression. Um, and that has tended to be suppressed for them. And so when they don't have a safe place to express their fullest, deepest, most vulnerable feelings, then that can really be detrimental to their mental health. And so, um, I mean, I think that that's, that's really real. But, you know, what's also interesting is that for some some other cultures, from for especially indigenous cultures, being sensitive was, was actually a gift and, you know, can be a telling of, you know, this connection with the other world. And so, um, I, yeah, really taking into consideration the fact that um, that uh, the stigma that we have uh, around being sensitive, that that means you're weak, um, can be reinforced in a lot of ways by our societies and really um, create uh, unsafe environments and, and people will stuff their feelings down and um, not get the help that they need. And so it sounds like there's a lot of room out there for more research, more dialogue and public awareness about this issue, especially in black and brown communities so that, yeah, I mean, I didn't even know about this topic until I heard you talk about, you know, the postpartum HSP connection. So I imagine there's so much more that can be, uh, illuminated for us as a society around that topic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, I, I would presume that, you know, the HSP trait might show up in greater um, numbers in black and brown and minoritized communities um, because just the the experience, you know, there's so much um, intergenerational trauma and even just the day-to-day experience of microaggressions, macroaggressions um, uh, that really wears down the nervous system. And so, um, you know, I would, I would be, I would not be surprised if when we were able to do some uh, really targeted research in those areas if it wouldn't show that there are quite a lot of um, people experiencing the uh, characteristics of this trait um, and and could could, you know, potentially be illuminating. There's this um, concept of, and again, a lot of this is debated in the community. And so you kind of have to take some of this with a grain of salt because, you know, a lot of these theories, they're theories. And so there's the theory that um, uh, it's evolved as an evolutionary trait. Uh, and so, um, and again, the the research, if, you, if anyone is interested in looking up the research, they tend to refer to it as sensory processing sensitivity. If you're looking for um, science scientific literature. Um, And so what they've uh, kind of hypothesized is that it developed as an evolutionary trait and that there's this um, presence of differential susceptibility. And so um, the idea is that um, you are born sensitive, but depending on the environment within which you um, grow up and are exposed to, that you are either, um, that you're more susceptible to the negative effects and the positive effects. So for example, some folks in 
the community say that the HSP trait doesn't exist at all. They say that it's just a result of childhood trauma and that you're hypervigilant. Um, but some of the researchers have really um, um, debunked that um, in the way that, um, you know, you can identify highly sensitive children. Um, and uh, what they found is that um, HSPs do respond more intensely to childhood trauma so they'll experience more, you know, depression, anxiety in adulthood. Um, but if you expose them to a supportive environment, they still show traits of, of the HSP trait in adulthood, but they thrive. They, they have the opportunity and ability to thrive if they have a very supportive environment as a, as a child. And so, you know, when you take into consideration some of these other conversations, um, it really is interesting to um, put that within the context of, of talking about this, um, you know, these um, environmental effects and how that um, impacts someone's range of capacity for their nervous system. And it makes me think of humans having evolved for a village life in which many types, many different types of people are needed to make the society work. And there are those who maybe are more of the warrior type person who can kind of put their emotions aside and get the job done. And then there are maybe more sensitive people who could be the counselors or the, those who are engaged in ritual or tending to the children, teachers. So it makes sense to me that there would be very different types of humans with different nervous system capacities. Um, maybe the warrior isn't the best person to be educating the two-year-olds. However, they would be great for the 14-year-olds or something. That's such a beautiful way to um, to really frame it. And um, and it's also, it acknowledges that they're all important um, and that, you know, not there isn't a hierarchy that one type, you know, one nervous system type is better than the next. Um, and so, you know, part of this conversation of uh, evolutionary, what they've uh, really kind of describe it as is that the HSP is able to make more calculated decisions. They're able to process things deeply and thoroughly and really kind of weigh the options and then make a, a decision that um, can equally increase the rates of survival, um, whereas opportunistic kind of um, uh, approaches will take the first opportunity that, that presents in the pursuit of survival. And so there's this way that they both kind of serve a need. Um, and, and yeah, I think that really connects to what you were saying. Yeah, that feels like a balanced society where there are folks like, let's do it. And there's a folks that are like, let's just take a quick pause and think about how it will affect the humans, the animals, and all the other beings. <laughs> and those two together, there can be, yeah, thriving. Yeah. And, and that's part of where that theory came from is that they found um, similar traits in about 100 species um, of animals. And so um, it's not just something that uh, has been uh, shown in humans. Ah, fascinating. Okay. I'm wondering if there are any misconceptions or surprises you've come across in your work around maternal health and highly sensitive people. Just that no one else has ever explored that intersection before. I mean, there's a book that Elaine Aaron came out with, uh, The Highly Sensitive Parent, um, but there's maybe one page, one kind of little section that talks about perinatal mental health. And it, to be honest, didn't quite 
uh, feel aligned to me. Um, and so that's why I've kind of been playing with the idea of doing some, some explorations on my own. Um, but it, it did surprise me that no one has ever really explored it, um, so much, but thankfully, you know, and you mentioned that you found me, um, creeping on somebody's post talking about the issue, um, you know, people are starting to talk about it more and um, starting to, to make those connections of how, you know, intense the perinatal period is um, and how intense just being living as an HSP is. Um, and so, uh, you know, that was really surprising to me. Um, it wasn't necessarily surprising to me that, um, you know, it, it, the um, samples uh, that they've done a lot of this research on aren't so diverse. Um, but also I know and understand the limitations and how hard it is to, to do research and get it published. And so, um, you know, I'm just really hoping that moving forward, there can be a more expansive um, approach to understanding the trait. And then as a, a transpersonal psychologist in training, I believe that there's more, um, more to this uh, HSP human experience than we can see with the eye or measure with research. Um, and so really kind of thinking about um, some of those uh, transpersonal elements that you mentioned, you know, those energetic subtleties and how can we really look at, um, you know, what's really happening that we can't see. Um, and, and what implications does that have in the scheme of how we understand, um, you know, psychic abilities and, um, how we connect with one another and what that means for the parent child bond. And I just have a lot of questions obviously, but, um, you know, those are some of the things that come to mind when you ask that question. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I can't wait for more of that research to come out. It sounds so fruitful and potent and needed. And yeah, it just brings me back to this idea that while challenging, highly sensitive people um, can be amazingly attuned parents, empathetic parents. And I think of times when I can sense, you know, maybe the next thing that my child needs or notice when they've, they do need a cuddle or some downtime, you know, to avoid some kind of tantrum situation and catch it long before maybe others would notice. And part of that's being a parent. We are so connected to our children, but I think there's a little extra something there, which I think we should give ourselves props for because the challenges are many. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think so much. And, and really just reinforcing that for parents that if you're sensitive, it doesn't, it, you, you don't have to look at it through the way that we've been conditioned to look at it as a weakness that, you know, if you've been told your whole life, Life that you are too sensitive. Why are you crying at that commercial again? And you know, why are you, why are you always leaving the party so early? Um, that it's it's just the way that you were created, and that it's it's okay, and and it can be really beautiful when you're able to harness it as you know a superpower. Um, and we're thinking about with parenting, there can be these efforts to avoid overstimulation that do impact our parenting, and so you know, taking it really seriously to think about you know, um, how am I going to, uh, understand how this impacts my parenting style? Um, so that, you know, my, my child gets, um, gets the best version of me. I love that. I also wonder about the layer of modern life on this because we of course are built for, I imagine a slower pace of life, um, technology. This is, this is new to our human 
biological systems, the amount of information just in the last 10 years that we've increased how much, how many images, how much light from screens, noise from our devices, um, ideas. It's just, it's, it's exponential. And so I'm wondering if that's something you also think about in terms of stimulation. All of that. All of that. That's the other thing. You know, we're we're sitting in traffic for hours, uh, some of us. Well, maybe not so much in the pandemic, but a lot of people are going back into the office. And so, you know, when you think about how intense sitting in traffic is with, you know, the honking and the weaving and the fast pace and like that alone is enough to overstimulate you and, and you need a, a break for three days, a three-day nap. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that is something that I think about. And I, I think about it, um, it, you know, in terms of like, what does this mean for the future of our bodies and our nervous systems? And, you know, are we wearing down our nervous system um, before we even get started? Um, and, you know, for children, you know, there there's um, I, I, also, I forgot to mention this earlier, but there's a high, high correlation with um, if a parent is highly sensitive that, you know, at least one or two children will be highly sensitive as well. And so, you know, parenting a child who is highly sensitive in a world where they're growing up, that technology is the basis of everything that they do. Um, and, you know, it, it's, you know, so hard to avoid that. It's so hard to shelter them from that. Um, when, you know, when they enter the school system, technology is is part of the game. And then, you know, they go out into the world where technology and, and um, you know, this larger context is, um, you know, it's kind of hard to shield them from it. So, um, yeah, it is something that I think about. I don't know that I have a lot of insights about it, but um, it, it is concerning. You know, I've been doing a lot of um, discussion lately, uh, or uh, I guess speaking engagement presentation, um, however you want to label it, about um, just expanding our concept of what it means to be a parent. Um, and, and this kind of circling back to what we were talking about with, about this idea of sacrifice and thinking about, um, you know, when you become a mother, when you become a father, um, that you're already faced with these, um, stereotypes and myths about what that experience is supposed to look like. And I have yet to meet someone who actually had that kind of perfect experience. I mean, we go into it thinking that it's one way, um, because we're not being upfront about how, you know, how intense that experience is. It's not bad. Um, it's just intense. It's a port you're going through this portal of transition on every level of transformation on every level. And so I've just really been, um, contemplating on how do we support parents, um, and, and remember them as part of this conversation, because so much of the focus is always on the baby, which yeah, rightfully so we have, you know, this child that we have to have to, um, rear and, you know, raise to be a contributing thriving member of society. But we can't do that if we're forgetting about the parents and, you know, we, there's all these talks about, um, you know, affordable childcare and paid family leave and, you know, really providing families with their basic necessities that they, that is their right. 
um, that they need to be able to provide that kind of environment for their child to thrive. And so, you know, I feel it's related to this conversation because, you know, we're thinking about promoting the mental, emotional, spiritual health of families. You know, it expands beyond just being able to show up at the hospital, have a baby and say good luck. You know, there's so much more that we need to be doing to serve these families. And, you know, we have this concept of the nuclear family as if it's a man, a woman, and maybe one or two children. And really, you know, families look so many different ways. There are intergenerational homes where there's grandparents and grandchildren in the same home. There's, you know, um, families where the um, birthing person is transgender man. And so, you know, really just um, starting to expand our definitions of what it looks like to create a family, um, what that process um, is going to play out to be, and being honest about the nature of that experience. Of course, it can be so beautiful, and it is beautiful for a lot of people. But for a lot of people, it's not because there's just so much out of their control um, that we're up against when we enter that experience. And so, um, you know, again, I don't know if I really have a, a specific call to action, um, but just really um, thinking about that, thinking about even if you're not a parent, think about how you parent ch- um, people in your life. You know, they're, you know, you don't have to be a birth giver to have parented and been a maternal figure for someone in your life. And so just really thinking about how important that time period is um, for, you know, creating the world that we all want to live in. Yes, that's, yes. <laughs> I I talk about this a lot in that I am so grateful for folks who do not have kids and the roles that they play in our family, helping us to raise our child, my child in particular, it is really not a one or two person job. And I didn't fully understand until I had my own child, how our society is not really built for thriving families. And so we construct it however way we can, our chosen family, our friends, the aunties, the uncles, it's, it's so valuable. And so to any of those out there who you know, aren't birthing people or partners of birthing people. I'm like, thank you for being you and showing up in the world with the energy that you have because we need it. Because you're equally as important in this ecosystem. And we were really, we're not meant to raise children in isolation. And that's exactly what many of us are doing. And it is for some people soul crushing. It is really, really difficult to do. And so, yeah, we just, we have to do better. We have to do better. And especially in the pandemic, I think we have seen firsthand that this nuclear family isolation model, it is not working and it's come into stark focus how uh, unsustainable this really is. And oh gosh, I hope that that folks are going to be working toward changing that because people really have had a hard time. Yeah. And there, I mean, there's research that's coming out to show that the rates of perinatal depression and anxiety have doubled, tripled, quadrupled um, just in the last year and a half. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to show up and uh, we're going to have a lot of work to do to, um, to get things 
to get these parents taken care of. Well, for those who would like to learn more about your work and get in touch, where can we find you online? Sure. Um, so I work for a nonprofit, um, Maternal Mental Health Now. And so you can visit our website. We have a lot of good um, training options. We run webinars and um, we, we partner with uh, institutions and organizations to bring personalized trainings. And so that's um, one place that you can find me. Um, I'm a part-time therapist with a private practice, ARC Counseling and Wellness. Um, that's based in Southern California. Um, uh, so that's another place you can find me. And then you can follow me on um, uh, Instagram at Wellness with Integrity. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you so much, Anna. This has been truly enlightening and I've learned so much. I can't wait to continue to follow your work in the world. And thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you. It's, this is just so important. Um, so I, I'm so much gratitude to you for bringing this topic um, uh, to this platform. Thank you for listening to the show. You can hear more episodes on moonwise.co or subscribe to the Moonwise podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you enjoyed the episode, leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts and get a shout out on the show. Reviewers help others find the podcast and I read each and every one. Thank you so much for your support. Our theme music is Butterflies March from Sophie Cooper's album, Rewilding. See you next time.